So anyway, Yozu, uh, it's good to see you again. And I understand that you have a question about comma. Uh, generally, uh, the, the concept of comma is at the absolute base of all religions. All right, and we'll describe what that means in a moment. The next point to understand is, is that the actual translation of the word comma actually means to do something. Almost as if you could use the word in English to carve. What? Like, like to carve, like to, like to carve a toy for a child out of a piece of wood. Okay, to carve is a way of thinking about comma. Uh, and it actually just means action. And that um, there came a time when um, the Brahmins were losing control both of property and of uh, uh, interest. You see, in, in those days, um, the, the priesthood uh, made a living by doing um, animal sacrifices. That that was still a big thing in 500 BC all over the world. In fact, even in, um, uh, in Judaism, they had a prophet named Jeremiah called the weeping prophet because he was crying for all of the killed animals. Okay, so uh, the, the Brahmins had the concept that they are Brahmin because they were born Brahmin, and you were not Brahmin because you were not born Brahmin. Now, born Brahmin, whatever that means, uh, has to do with something that happened before you were born. And so the idea then is, is that we are fortunate and lucky to have been born Brahmin, and you were not lucky and not fortunate because here you are under our thumb. Mm -hmm. Right? So uh, this is what gave rise to the law of Kama, and it happened at about um, 800 BC. Um, and it was in full effect there for 300 years or more before the Buddha came. And um, that was when the concept of a self came into play in the sense that I am Brahman now, and I was born Brahman because I was good in the past, and that you were born not Brahman because you were not so good in the past. Okay, so it, it started off as a political ploy. Now, let's look at comma directly. Comma directly uh, <clears throat> means that it's just an action. And uh, according to Buddha's law of cause and effect that we find out that, uh, in fact, the law of cause and effect is what absolutely runs our universe, and it's the reason why time moves forward. If time were to move backwards, then that would mean that every result then became a cause 
to cause the thing that happened uh, that caused them to happen. Okay, so the cause and effect gets reversed if we're going to go backwards in time. And that's the reason time moves forward is because causes affect results. This is the important point is that an action has a result. When you do something, it uh, creates something else. And this is an important point. Now, um, one of the things that we can understand is, is that there are some actions that are good that give good results. There are some actions that are bad that give bad results. And that's easy enough for any child to see. And the Buddha, in fact, agreed to that, that there are some good actions that lead to good results, and there are some bad actions that lead to bad results. The law of karma goes much further than that and says that all good actions will all eventually give good results, and all bad actions will eventually give bad results. Now, this has also the quality to do with if there is bad behavior, if there is wrongdoing, the child cannot get away with it. They will get caught. They will get punished. This is the thing that we teach our children is, is that if you behave well, then mommy and daddy will reward you. And if you act badly, you're going to have a rough time. If you lie to mommy, she's going to spank you. Okay, so this is the idea that we treat our children and then we give them a, the kind of the big thing, and that is to add that little kicker no matter what. Because any child can see that they can behave badly, and if they behave badly well enough, they can get away with it. In other words, if I lie to my mom, I can lie to her well enough that she believes me, then I can get away with it. Okay, so this is an important quality that is built into what they call the law of karma. But let's just look at action itself for a moment and, and, and talk about it in the sense of a good action gives a good result. Well, that means that the result determines the action. Think about that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the result of the action determines whether it was a good action or not. And yet the way that the Brahmins have stated the law and the way that the, uh, it works in all religions, Christianity is, is that if you do good here on earth, then you will get rewarded in heaven. And if you do bad here on earth, then you will go to hell unless you can get a get out of hell free card called forgiveness. All right. Now, let's look at actual actions that we actually know. And that is the action, for instance, that if you buy stock in a company. And that stock goes up and you sell it then you can consider that you the buying of the stock was a good thing to do. It was a good action and it led to a good result. But if you buy the stock and then it goes down and you have to sell it, then the original stock was not such a good move. It was a bad move. But we don't know that 
at the time of the action. Mm -hmm. We know that because of the result. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is an important point. There's another point about it, and that is uh, <clears throat> go to um, uh, at any football match or football game. Um, there are referees, and those referees from time to time throw penalty flags. And sometimes those penalty flags are uh, at an important event or an important point in time in the game. And so when that penalty flag is thrown, half the audience jumps up and down in rage. They don't like that call. It was a bad call. It cost them points or something. The other team uh, side will jump up and down in joy, thinking that that was a really good call. Okay, so I ask you in that regard, was that call a good action or a bad action? It's relative. Well, let us say not just relative, but it, in fact, it's mixed. Uh-huh. It's mixed. Mm -hmm. And so in that regard, there is both good and bad in it. Yeah. Now we can also begin to recognize, well, wait a minute, every action is like that. We have it in, built into our language in the sense that every cloud has a silver lining. Right? Okay. I and also, pardon? I have never heard. You haven't heard that cliche, okay. Every cloud has a silver lining, or um, we don't know that all the results are bad, that there could have been some good results. A really silly example of that was is that because of the Holocaust and Auschwitz, there was the birth of the nation Israel, that they had direct links and direct connections, right? So that meant that all of the bad, terrible things that Hitler did finally had some good outcome. <clears throat> now, I know that things are really complicated like that, but life is, in fact, complicated. And that one action cannot determine always what the result is going to be. Now, okay, so now we're beginning to see that things are getting complicated here. Things are getting really complicated. So let's go back to a good action gives a good result and a bad action gives bad result. Some actions, only some, we will know in advance that they are good actions. And some and some things in advance we know are going to be bad actions. For instance, if you uh, if you eat poison, that's going to have a detrimental effect upon the body. It's going to be a bad result. Mm -hmm. Unless some kind of fluke happens and all of a sudden everybody knows that you've been poisoned and yet you feel fine. Mm. OK, so we don't know what's going to happen in that regard, but generally we can say that if you eat poison, that's a bad action and it's going to give a bad result. And also, if you were very hungry and starving, hasn't eaten for a day or two, if you eat, that's a good action going to give you a good result. It's going to nourish you. Okay, so some actions we can tell automatically are going to be automatically good. And some actions are going to be uh, bad and automatically bad. And some things are automatically bad 
and absolutely despicable, like, for instance, killing a parent. Okay, that's absolutely despicable bad action. But we don't know what the results are going to be for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An example, in fact, that one of the places where a man will kill his father is when there is a great deal of money or power involved with it. For instance, it's known that, that princes kill kings in order to become a king. Yeah, yeah. And and sometimes they get away with it. And sometimes then that prince does become king and he reigns. And he may or may not be killed by his own son. So we don't know what the outcome of some of those actions are, but we can say that they are actually despicable and terrible things to do. But we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Well, One of the qualities of religion is is that it's a social system. Religions work best when they're absolutely private. In other words, if I use my religion to straighten out my own mind and get my own life in order, I'll have great benefit. But mostly, uh, religion is about crowd control. This is why religion and governments have been... uh, linked together so tightly is because um, the religion gives the authority to the king and then the king's job is to enforce the authority that the uh, religion grants him. Yeah. Okay. So um, religions then um, help build society. Or you could say that, in fact, magical thinking builds society. It builds our culture. It builds our cities. It builds our manufacturing, etc., like that. How does this happen? It happens this way. That the absolute fact and reality is, is that nobody knows what the future is going to be. Period. That's the basic fact of life. That's why we have gambling. That's why we have betting. If everybody knew for sure what the outcome of the bet would be, no one would be doing any betting. Mm-hmm. Right? There would be no gambling if everybody knew what was going to happen. And, and then, in fact, they, they want to say that we know what's going to happen when, in fact, we don't. We don't know what's going to happen. So... Um, Going along with this, then, the Buddha says, okay, let's use the law of karma to say that that good actions give good results, but it's only immediate that good actions give good results or it's undetermined. And that you can't say that, wait a minute, we got to let the clock tick or maybe the calendar roll for a century or two, and then we will determine whether that action gets the results or not. But in that regard, we can say, all right, we're going to build a a society. We're going to build a business or something. You come to work for me and I'll pay you once a week or once a month. Now, the the delusion or the the magic is, is that, okay, if I work, every day 
then I am guaranteed by some law of comma that I'm going to get paid. Mm -hmm. Right? Guess what? Generally, companies, if they do go out of business, they go out of business on payday. So that they don't have to make that last payroll. Isn't that interesting? They don't have to make that last payroll. If they don't have to make the last payroll because they're going out of business, then the law that guarantees that if you work, you'll get paid. But you don't. You're not you're not necessarily going to get paid. This is an important point. Because. It's almost always the promise. Rather than the actual results, so good action has the promise of good results and bad action has the promise of bad results. But the promise doesn't get fulfilled many much of the time. That in fact, it's much more likely that a good action has mixed motives and a bad action has mixed motives and therefore is going to have mixed results. Both good and both bad, like I mentioned about Hitler, there's many, many examples we can use of where the. Um, the results are mixed. Always it didn't winds up when is is that the determination of whether it was good or bad, the results are is an individual's. Um, opinion. And yet the religions try to make it into a thing of its own. They actually give the law of karma a self of its own. Okay, and in Christianity, the self that they give that law of karma is actually God Almighty himself. That's the personality that is the karma machine in Christianity. Why? It's because God decides to put you into heaven or hell after you die. And they also talk about that God has a whole lot of influence on the earth to go ahead and give you good results now or bad results, depending upon his whim. Mm -hmm. Rather than according to some actual laws that are on the books. In fact, the laws that are written in the books were written down by people who wanted that promise to be fulfilled rather than seeing that it's just a promise. So we have this third law of karma, which is actually more correct. And that is, is that uh, an action that has mixture of both good and bad as the action are going to have a mixed result. And this is the third kind of karma. And then the Buddha talks about a fourth kind of comma. Which is? All right, and that's the comma of the nobles. All these other kinds of comma, you can see that in fact, the, the idea of good action gives good results and bad action gives bad results. That's what we teach children. That's the law for children to follow. That's the law for the employer to tell his employees. That's the underdog's position. 
A much more adult position is that all actions are mixed. That, that, that there is no such thing as an absolute good action that has absolutely good results. And there's no absolutely bad that gives an absolutely bad result. It may be atrocious. It may be what we have in our deepest of hearts and our conscience, that it is despicable, bad and terrible action. But that does not guarantee the results. Why? Because there's no thing, there's no mechanism, there's no law enforcement to guarantee the results. That in fact, the guarantee of the results is a lie. And that's what makes it magical thinking. That you may not get paid. But why, why do you say it is a lie? Because it's a promise that cannot always be fulfilled. And yet the, to the person who believes that thinks that no matter what, it will come true. It may not, but it can, right? I'm sorry, what? It may not be like the promise may not be fulfilled in a way, but it can be fulfilled. Am I right or wrong? Well, that's what the one who does the promise yes. will tell you. Uh -huh. Oh, well, you just have to wait. Mm. I can't pay you today, I'll pay you tomorrow. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say what I'm thinking, okay? You're what? I'm going to say what I'm thinking right now. Okay. Um, that the Buddha said that he saw with direct knowledge how beings die and then are reborn, reborn in other places according to their past actions, you know? That is a common teaching that's associated with the Buddha, but that was a common teaching before the time of the Buddha. And during the time of the Buddha, everyone who came to the teachings of the Buddha believed that. Mm -hmm. And so it was a common belief system that people had in the time of the Buddha, including many of the students. You could go so far as to say the process of understanding what the Buddha taught is the process of coming out of magical thinking about the law of karma. Well, you could, you, one, one could call it magical thinking, but the Buddha emphatically said that he saw with direct knowledge. He didn't mm. like, create that. He didn't invent it. Ah. But that, um, let us say it this way. Uh, the question that you're asking is actually quite important. But let's go and do the fourth law of comma, and then we'll come back and revisit this okay. issue. Okay? Because the Buddha also taught that there was a fourth law of comma. And the fourth law of comma is for the nobles. Mm -hmm. So you have 
um, the law of comma uh, that's mixed comma is for the adults and that the good action gives good results and bad action gives bad results is more for children. But the Buddha says that for the nobles, there is a new law of karma, and that is, is that uh, an action that is neither good nor bad will give results that are neither good nor bad. Uh-huh. But it does lead to the end of action. Comma uh-huh. that leads to the end of comma. That's an important quality of this. So let's look at it a bit. If, in fact, the noble is um, avoiding causing himself and others dukkha, then his action is not going to be dark action. Also, if the action that the, uh, the noble takes is void of hope for the future, but in fact, he does what he's doing for the benefit and the results that he has right now. Then it doesn't have that residual quality. And so it doesn't have, in other words, we're talking about for the Buddhist people, merit making. Merit making, Tom Boone, or Sai Bat, putting money into the, uh, or excuse me, putting food in the monk's bowl tithing at the Christian church and all of this kind of stuff is called a good action that is supposedly going to give a good result. That in fact, in our family, the joke was is that my mom is building a mansion in heaven and every time that she sends money to the church, it's another floorboard or a beam for her um, mansion in heaven, okay? And so this is what we mean by planned good action, hoping for a good result. But in fact, the noble-minded person only does the good actions for the immediate benefit. For instance, our generosity, like we give, we give, um, Willie does this in New York when he is out and about. Now he's in coronavirus uh, lockdown. But he was um, he started off with a quarter and then he went to a dollar. And now recently he had been giving um, he would go to the donut shop and get a donut or a bagel and a cup of coffee, which is in New York, about five dollars. And he gives that to the person without any expectations other than that they will have a meal right here, right now. <clears throat> He winds up making friends with people on the street because very few people in New York are actively practicing generosity. Okay, but he wasn't doing it to build relationship with those people. He was doing it for the immediate benefit of the feeling of goodwill and generosity. So we're talking about now a kind of action that is um, not like Tom Boom or Sai Bad or putting mon- money or uh, food in the monk's bowl for some future reward in heaven, like a mansion or something. That's a good action that's hoping for a good result, you see. And so when we have actions that is neither bright nor dark, 
which is neither hoping for the good that this benefit will do in the future, nor are we accumulating ill will anywhere, then the result is going to be unimportant. Because we're doing things for the benefit of it happening right now, not for the benefit of a later future. Okay, so what that means then is, is that an individual who is no longer trying to go get something, he's not out shopping, he's not taking good actions, hoping for a good result, and he's not actually out there harming people and having to put up with the, uh, the bad results. He is left with that Zen place of nothing to do and no place to go. Because most of our behaviors have to do with trying to get something that we want or trying to avoid the, uh, the results of our bad actions. And when our actions are neither good nor bad, then we wind up having not much action. So that's the, that's the idea then that the Buddha had and that this is actually uh, this this part is in several different suttas. One of my favorites is in sutta number 57 in the Majjhima Nikaya, and this is called the dog duty aesthetic. Now, the dog duty aesthetic, and there was also a cow duty aesthetic. I've never seen a cow duty aesthetic, but when I was in Hyderabad in India back in the 1970s, I see that they are still practicing this stuff. Okay, now what is a dog duty aesthetic? Is someone who is pretending to be a dog as best mm -hmm. a human can be, which means that he scratches a lot, doesn't care much about clothing, doesn't eat food off of, uh, off of a plate that's been handed to him, but he eats off the ground. He will, you know, uh, uh, pee and, and uh, crap in public all of the kinds of things that a dog would do, okay? And so the dog duty aesthetic goes to the Buddha and asks him about this practice. And, and the Buddha says to him, if you are successful, if this dog duty aesthetic practice that you have is going to give you good results, then the good results that you will have is, is that you will become a dog because that's what you're practicing to be. And if you fail at it, then your only option is hell. So becoming a dog duty aesthetic is not going to take you and put you in a noble mind. It's either going to turn you into a dog or it's going to put you in hell because you failed at it. When the dog duty aesthetic heard that, he started to cry because he recognized immediately that he had been wasting his time. That that action that he was taking, and then the Buddha told him this story about the four kinds of karma. So that we could come out of that wanting to do some sort of spiritual practice or to take some sort of job in order to get some result out of it rather than learning how to experience the results of our actions right now, right in this very moment. 
that the Buddha was actually quite big on this very moment. He actually gave himself and referred to himself as the Tathagata. Now that word comes from the word Tathata, and the word Tathata actually means something like, this is it, or this here. Uh, and that it, uh, in English, um, we've got several expressions. One is this present moment that came from um, uh, Eckhart Tolle, or Ram Das gives us be here now, okay? This is what the real teaching of the Buddha is, is all about this present moment, about what's happening right now, not off into the future. Because if you have the idea that the good will happen in the future, just not yet, then that becomes magical thinking. In other words, we're looking for the future. It puts us into the future. It puts us into the past. So a lot of people then um, are looking for, well, who was I in the past? Who was I in the past, you know, last year? What, what happened last year? What happened yesterday? Now, what's the difference between what happened yesterday? Because the, the past is the past. So the past is the past, yesterday is the past, last year is the past, and 300 years ago is the past. If the Buddha says that it's inappropriate for us to worry about what we did last year or last month, then it's certainly also the case of what happened 300 years ago or 500 years ago, way deep dark into the past. It's irrelevant. And yet the Brahmins were telling people, oh, you are a low-class person because you were born a low-class person, and you were born a low-class person not because of just simple circumstances, but because of this law of karma, that you were actually a bad person, and that that personality that you had in the past comes forward into the now. And you were the same person. The person who actually did that crime three to five hundred years ago is now the same person that experiences that result of that good and bad action. Well, that cannot be, but there's a kind of like a succession of events. Like, like if you put these little dominoes like in lines, and then you put you move one and all the other ones fall but it's not the same domino falling there's many dominoes falling and they're making a line uh, i'm not quite following you can you repeat that it's like like there's no it's not the same self or the same person obviously that's exactly correct exactly there's okay a, something like a if you put domino, do, do you know what are dominoes? The dominoes? Mm-hmm. You put them in a, do, do you put them in a right. line? One hits the next, that one hits the next. So this this cause becomes an event, or that it creates an event. But that event, then, the real results of that action is now the determining cause for the next action in a sequence of events. 
uh-huh. and things keep going on and on and on and on. Okay, and so old, old actions way long ago are now mixed with tens of thousands of millions of other new actions that have happened along the way, and it's all in a, in a mix. And so uh, it's impossible to determine then and, and to do the, the silly statement that, well, Israel wouldn't have existed without the Holocaust. Therefore, the Holocaust was the determining causative action of the nation of Israel. The answer to that is that took too many years. There were too many fingers in the pie. There was too many loud voices for you to say that Hitler's action actually created the nation of Israel. That's impossible to say. And yet this is magical thinking of saying that something that happened long time ago was the determining cause for what happened in this and caused this result. Um, I've got to go get my phone's charger. Okay. I'll take like maybe one minute. Okay. Okay, so let's go with that idea for a moment of something old, long ago, someone long ago did an action that now has the quality of the result in this life. In Asia, uh, especially in India, but also in Thailand, um, they will look at a beggar. Uh, and there is actually a beggar's mafia in India, and the beggar's mafia, what they will do is, is that they will harm or disform or disfigure a child that is brought to them for a fee. And then that child can go out on the street or their parent and say, oh, please give us alms because we are so unfortunate. Look at my son's arm. And this happened because of his past life. And it didn't. It actually was something that was done recently. Okay. But this is how the, the game is played in India. Uh, and so everyone then in India has the idea that everyone's station in life then is a result of the actions that were taken long, long ago. And the Buddha is saying, no, the results of the station in life that you have now is not a result of something that happened long, long ago. It's based upon conditions and causes and effects and conditionality that's happening currently. So this is one of the things. Now, the people in the time of the Buddha did think the way that the Brahmins thought. 
one of them, uh, in fact, there's a number of them in, in the suttas, and a lot of what the Buddha taught was a way of trying to get those people to come out of those beliefs into um, the reality of the situation. One example of that is the sutta, I think it's number 120, to where um, many people who believe in rebirth and reincarnation will use this um, as an example where the Buddha is talking about rebirth and reincarnation. But then at the end of the sutta, it, we recognize that he must have been talking about something else because the last thing that he said would be, therefore, O monks, do not be reborn. Well, now, if the law of karma is the law of karma, then people don't have any choice about being reborn. And the Buddha is saying, no, you've got a choice right now to not be reborn. So this is an important quality is, is to make the change in people's minds and attitudes that were raised in a religion, raised with the law of karma, raised with the idea of sin and original sin and all of that kind of stuff. These ideas need to be given up in favor of what's happening right now. So, um, one sutta number 38 um, is where it's actually stated very clearly by Sati, son of a fisherman, where he says that it is um, consciousness that runs in circles from this existence to the next, experiencing the good and bad actions from the past. And the Buddha actually was quite uh, harsh with Sati. He told him that he didn't have even a spark of wisdom. That he didn't have a clue about. And he said, who, whenever or to whomever have you ever hold, heard me say that consciousness moves from place to place? Now, the, uh, here's an important quality of this. Is, is that all the religions, including Hinduism, believe that it is consciousness that actually survives death. The body doesn't survive death, but it is consciousness that survives death, because otherwise, if someone died and goes to heaven, but in heaven, he wound up being a completely different person who had no memories or understanding of anything that happened when that person died, then there's not much of a connection there. Is that that connectedness is because of the idea of consciousness, that it is a me that's there. It's the consciousness that is of, uh, aware of the good and bad things that happened to me much later. And the Buddha is saying, well, wait a minute. Let's look at consciousness for a second, because consciousness, like everything else, is dependently arising. It is dependent. It's dependent upon the eye and the sight will, uh, or the object that the eye sees will give sight consciousness. If you close your eyes, you can't see. They talk about God in the sense of the uh, eye in the sky or the sky daddy, the guy who's got eyes who's watching over everything. Well, 
Up until about 50 years ago, there were no eyes in the sky. Now there's no eyes in the sky except cameras and an occasional astronaut. But the astronaut way up in the sky is so far away, he can't see any actions that are being taken on the Earth. Okay, so the whole idea of eyes in the sky is meaningless. And yet for many, many hundreds of years, everybody thought that you were being watched by someone who was judging you and that that judgment would be stored up for a later time and then unleashed after you were dead. This is the way that uh, that is generally taught in all religions, whether it's Islam or uh, Christianity. Um, Hinduism, all of them have that idea that there is something watching, perhaps a comma machine or a comma machine with a personality. And if the comma machine has a personality, let's give the name to that personality of a god or a deva or something. Okay. But the Buddha is saying no that this comma machine doesn't exist like that. It exists in the sense of merely the cause and effect and the cause and effect. So if you're going to understand comma correctly, you have to see that there is cause and effect built into it, that there is no time delay. The next point that the Buddha made with Sati <clears throat> was talking about fire. Fire has a fuel. Every fire has a fuel. There is no fire that does not have fuel, and the fire is known by its fuel. It's known by its fuel, which means that uh, what kind of fire is it that has no fuel? We can have a grass fire. We can have a, uh, um, uh, a car fire. We can have a house on fire. We can have a gas fire, an electrical fire, all kinds of fires, but the fire is known by its fuel. It would be then magical thinking or incorrect thinking to think that there are fires that burn without any fuel. Well, if that's the case, then what is it that would move from life to life and while that soul or that um, consciousness is not in a body, where is its fuel? Where is its nurturement? Where is its substance? It's got no substance. It's got no fuel. This is an important quality that we have to understand that every fire has a fuel. And we can say that consciousness, like fire, is known by its fuel. So we have eye consciousness, we have sound consciousness, we have touch consciousness, we have taste consciousness, we have smell consciousness, and we have thought consciousness. So we have six different kinds of, of consciousness and that each one of them has a fuel. And if there is no fuel for that consciousness, then consciousness does not arise. Uh -huh. Okay. So, um, 
This is what gives rise then to the teaching of Paticca Samuppada, which we will go into at a later time. Now, what actually the word Paticca Samuppada means uh, is Paticca means the cause. And, and all things are given, Samuppada, are given due to a cause. There's got to be a fuel for that fire. There's got to be a causality to it. And that the mind works that way in the sense of a series of events will occur, each one of them having a fuel, each one of them creating a new fire. And so you can see how fire spread. That, for instance, if the car in the garage is on fire, then the garage will catch on fire. If the garage is on fire, then the house will burn down. If the house is close to the house next door, then the two houses will burn. And maybe the whole neighborhood and perhaps the whole town, but it got started by one thing. But even the car fire itself was probably due to an electrical fire that was very small. The first bit of fire was just very small, but look, it eventually burned down the whole city. This is what we mean by cause and effect and cause and effect and cause and effect. One thing happens after another, after another, after another. This is the teaching of Paticca Samuppada. There's also another Pali word for it. It's called Idiyapapajayata, and that would then be translated best as the law of causality. That everything that happens, happens because of a cause. That's why the word because is so common in the English language, is that we talk about a result, and then we use the word because, and then we give the causality for it. I am angry at you because you didn't send me an email, okay? That's exactly what we're talking about, the cause and effect, and everything has to have a cause. Every fuel has to have, or every fire has to have a fuel. This is the teaching of the Buddha. And that the teaching of rebirth and reincarnation has a value to it. And here is the value. This causality, this cause and effect, the Buddha actually says, is quite profound. It's quite deep. It's difficult to understand and it needs to be investigated deeply. In other words, this takes wisdom to understand this con concept of causality. To where teaching children, children don't have that kind of wisdom. Therefore, we will leave causality to them as a more magical kind, which means that if you lie to mom now, she may not know it until tomorrow, and when she finds out that you lied yesterday, now you're going to get the spanking. But the child doesn't recognize that, uh, that it was not actually the lie that he told yesterday that is the cause of mom's anger today. The cause of mom's anger today is the discovery of the lie. Okay, so... Everything has a, an instantaneous kind of quality to it. But we teach our children that it, it can be delayed 
and that we am the uh, the thing that good actions will give good results and bad actions will give bad results no matter how long it takes. No matter what. And so this is in fact the teaching that is in our common um, uh, society. If in fact that law of karma was not perpetuated on society, we would have never built a society. Why? <clears throat> if I can go and do as I want to do, harm all the people that I want to harm, kill all the animals on this side of the river, and then come to this side of the river and kill all the animals here, 500 cattle, 1,000 goats, and there is no result of my actions, then people are not going to be able to keep animals because this dude over here keeps killing them all. So they're more than likely going to come after him. So the guy who's saying, I can kill all of these animals and it has no effect upon me. Well, guess what? Look at all the work that you had to go through to kill all those animals. Now look at all these dead carcasses you've got to deal with. And on top of that, look how many unhappy people you've got to deal with. And all of that is immediate right here in the present moment due to the fact that you've just killed all these animals, right? But this is where the children are. They think that they can get away with doing anything. The child thinks that he can lie to his mom. And so we teach our children the basic concepts or the basic precepts in the sense of don't kill because family members of the guy you killed are going to come after you. Never mind that uh, they they may not be able to catch up with you for three or four hundred years, and it's only the descendants, or maybe not the descendants, but actually the reborn person that you killed is going to come kill you, is the way that they look at it magically. <clears throat> because we're promising these children that you must suffer for your bad actions without actually defining what the bad actions are. So when we define those bad actions, we define them in the sense of Buddhist precepts, but they always are taught to the children in the sense that if you do this wrongly, you will eventually have to pay for it. But the reality is, is that you're paying for it right now. An example is a teenager who is in the shops, uh, shoplifting, taking things that are not given. Most of the time, when the child is in there taking things that uh, that he's shoplifting and putting in his pocket, number one, he is in danger of getting caught. He's suffering. Number two, he knows he's in danger of getting caught, and so now he's uh, uh, full of tension and anxiety and worry and frustration, as well as all of this greed that he's got for this item. And so, in fact, he's not getting away with it right there in that very moment while he's trying to steal it. He's not getting away with it. Now, there are many things that he could do to guarantee if he's experienced, but we're talking about a new kid who's newly shoplifting and children have to get caught shoplifting before they stop doing it. Right? That's because of the magical thinking. If the child was wise in the first place, he would have not done any shoplifting because he knew how bad he would feel by merely doing it. 
never mind whether he gets caught or not. But we talk about it in the sense of getting caught for it, and that if the store clerk can't catch you, then the big policeman in the sky will. So this is the way that uh, that we have built our society. We built our society by training our children to behave well so that we can have a society so that all the animals don't get killed because some kid decided that he's going to go do some target practice and kill all the animals in the uh, uh, neighborhood. Okay. So we're told him, we're telling him that that's wrong to do because you will have to be punished for your bad action. So once one becomes very wise, once one grows up and becomes an adult, we can see that, wait a minute, I'm going to avoid suffering because I don't want to create suffering for myself and others right here, right now, and I'm unconcerned about the deep, dark future. I'm avoiding it because I know through wisdom that th those kinds of things are dangerous. And so we can see the danger. So basically, this is one of the major teachings of the Buddha that fits in with that. And the Buddha says that uh, there is gratification. And this is the reason we do things is because we're gratified by doing it, that we like it. We eat something because we like the taste of it, etc. The kid will take that thing out of the store because he likes it. It's going to be gratifying for him. Okay. But what we need to wake up to and have wisdom about is the danger. The da there's danger in many of the things that we do. And if we can see the danger, then that danger will be the escape. If I cannot see the danger in what I'm doing, then I will not be able to see the escape. A lot of people like that, for instance, do not see any danger in their anger. They think that it's quite okay to, to be angry at the kids and angry at their uncle and angry at their uh, boss. And, and then they be, get, get angry at the judge or get angry at the cop and they haul him into court and he gets angry at the judge. The judge is going to put him in jail and now he's going to be angry at the big bully at the prison. He's going to get the tar beat out of him, okay? So eventually we have to wake up that anger is dangerous. Once we wake up to anger is dangerous, then we will find an escape from that anger. We'll catch it and say, wait a minute, this is dangerous for me to do that. Let me stop doing it. Mm -hmm. And so this is the wisdom that, that comes into play, is, is that there is dangers and we must see those dangers and that that is wisdom. But there are many people who cannot see the dangers, and so we create a magical danger for him. What is that magical danger? If you do that, God's going to send you to hell. That's magical thinking. But it creates the danger, and if the child can see the danger and then avoid that behavior, then he is better off in that particular moment. But that child, in fact, may wind up being traumatized over the fear of hell because he sees the danger in everything he does. 
And so somewhere, hopefully along the way, we're going to wake this child up to say, wait a minute, this has not got to do with some some danger and dangerous result that happens way off into the future. But rather that you need to see the danger because of the potential danger or the potential damage that it, that this actions will occur. And so so the wisdom then is to see the danger in the bad behavior. So this is the law of karma. The law of karma that the Buddha teaches is not the same law of karma that the Brahmins teach or the same law of karma that Christianity teaches. That he's teaching the law of karma that has actually an escape built into it. First off, to see that good action gives good results and bad action gives bad results is always immediate. It's always in the present moment, or at least today, and is certainly not something that happens way off into the future because there's no connection now with that future. There's going to be too many, many connections to make this thing that happened today the only cause for that event that happens 300, 500 years from now. It is always going to be very sophisticated, very complicated. And therefore, we cannot say that actions that happened this year are going to be the results of what are, is going to cause that result that happens way off into the distance. An example of that would be you open a bank account. You put money in the bank. Three years later, you take the money out of the bank and you think that the only cause for getting that money out of the bank was because you put the money in the bank. But oh no, there's a lot of stuff happened between the time you put that money in the bank and the time you took it out. What happens if that bank failed? Then you don't get your money. What happens if somebody took that money out of the account before you want to take it out of the account? Okay, so in that regard, you can't say that putting money in the bank was the only causal factor that resulted in getting the money out of the bank three years later. Okay, a lot of a lot of stuff had to happen. A lot of causes, a lot of effects, many, many things happened along that way. And so in the same sense of buying a stock and the stock goes up or down, the stock going up and down has nothing to do with whether you bought it or not. The stocks are going to go up and down based upon other factors and conditions, not upon whether you bought it or not. So when you buy that stock, you have no clue as to whether this is going to be a good action or a bad action. You don't know that. So this is why the Buddha says, really, what we need to do is come back and live our lives in this present moment. Because the future, we don't know what it's going to be. The cause-effect cycle and all of the events of that cause-effect cycle is going to be such that far off into the future, things are going to be really, really complicated. Okay, so... Now let's look at it from the perspective of how can someone come out of this belief in reincarnation? 
reincarnation means that it is consciousness itself that uh, survives death and is either resurrected or knows that it's not resurrected and it goes around as a spook. Okay, a ghost. Something, an apparition, something that is not really there because he's got no real fire, but he still holds things together. Uh, and so uh, this is the first idea, um, the hard idea, and the idea that the Brahmins had was is that there is a self or a soul that is based in consciousness that survives death. And it is that same very soul then that is reborn in the next lifetime hundreds of years later. This is the belief. Once someone understands from the perspective of the Buddha that no consciousness is dependently arising, then this is what takes it from that high level of, of ignorance and takes and peels away a layer of ignorance. And so we come down from reincarnation down to what we call rebirth. And the idea in the Buddhist rebirth is, is that yes, there is something or maybe there is nothing to be reborn, but yet there is a rebirth. There is an effect, but it is not the same as the one who caused it. In other words, because there's no consciousness linking, that means that what is reborn, and in fact, uh, we can go for it like this, that uh, uh, <clears throat> in Christianity, they have the term life after death. Well, of course, there's life after death. When I die, you're going to continue to live. If the dog dies, the other dog lives. The there's always the, going to be life. They are referring, they are referring to the to the kind of like the individual life, like the person that dies. Mm-hmm. They are referring to that. Uh huh. Um, and so it's not so much of life itself, life after death, but my life after death. Uh huh. Me, I, me, and my. And that's what we find up with, with the idea of reincarnation or being uh, sent to heaven or hell after we're dead. It's me that goes, but that me there is the me that, I'm, that I know or that I'm conscious of. Therefore, it is consciousness that's being reborn. But within the Buddhist concept, that since consciousness itself is dependently arising and is momentary and in this moment, that whatever it is that's being reborn, it's not consciousness. If it's not consciousness, then that means that whatever is reborn is not me, it's going to be somebody else. Even if all of my bad actions give someone else a bad result hundreds of years from now, that person in the, re in the future is not me. But there will be a sentient being experiencing the suffering, isn't it? That's the well, yes, but there's no causal linkage that makes this me. It's no, still just yeah. a set of circumstances or a set of cause effects and causes effects that life goes on, even if it's not my life. Uh -huh. 
Okay, so this is what they mean by then rebirth, which means that whatever is reborn is not me. Well, if whatever is reborn is not me, then it's not my business. Therefore, I should be unconcerned about rebirth and reincarnation. And so rather than um, making the flat out statement that um, nothing survives death. It's not true because all kinds of things are going to survive your death. You buy if you die in the bed. The, the bed, they may throw it out, but the bed that you die in is going to survive. Other people may live in that or sleep in that bed after you're dead. So um, it's not a matter of um, things, everything stops, but rather the concept of me is what stops. And so if we can come to understand that we really do not know what happens after death, nobody has a clue about what happens after death. What we do have a whole lot of clues about is what's happening right now. And so we change our frame of reference from way off into the future into right now and leave rebirth and reincarnation to other people who want to worry about such things. But in fact, this is exactly the way that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa would teach it. He would say, oh, here at Watso and Mok, we don't talk about that kind of rebirth. We talk about a different kind of rebirth, the kind of rebirth that happens right now, that where you're reborn into anger or you're reborn into frustration or you're reborn into fear that there are ways to be reborn in this present moment and that that's what we have some control over. That's where we have some choice. But you basically don't have any choice about what's going to happen to somebody 500 years from now. Therefore, there's no reason to put any time or effort or energy trying to figure any of that out. It is much better for us to spend our time now fixing what needs to be fixed right now. And so we become um, unconcerned with teachings like rebirth and reincarnation, not saying that they don't exist, because really, in fact, we don't know whether they exist or not, but whether we can do work with it the way Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about it is in the sense of, oh, we don't talk about that kind of stuff. There are plenty of people who want to talk about uh, karma and rebirth and reincarnation. Go talk to those people about it. But here, we're much more interested in how to come out of suffering right bloody now. Okay, I'm going to (laughs) ask. You, you think about this, you mull it over. In fact, you might want to, when we put this video out, to re- review it again. I will. <laughs> to make sure that, that you understand this, because this is profound. It's difficult, and it is um, an important lead-in into the actual teachings of Paticca Samuppada, how the mind actually works to create suffering. And yet, as I said before, 
there are many, many millions and millions of people who have come to the teachings of the Buddha who never make it past this point because they think that the teachings of the Buddha is all about rebirth and reincarnation to where in fact the Buddha taught directly against those things, not in the sense that they weren't true, but in the sense that those teachings are irrelevant. They're irrelevant. They don't they don't have any bearing on this present moment. And so we should work work with uh, and uh, um, consider the things that we do have choices for the way that we feel right now, the thoughts that we're having right now and be unconcerned with tomorrow. And be unconcerned with the deep past. Who knows what happened a long time ago? And it doesn't even matter. I mean, you can see that there's a lot of arguments, uh, long lasting arguments, even um, uh, debates on the stage with a huge audience about um, the beginning of time in the sense of uh, uh, was God the creator? or the Big Bang, or all of that kind of stuff. And they get into great big discussions about it. But the fact is, is that all the people who have those discussions about it were not the time of the Big Bang. Nobody was there at the time of the Big Bang. There were no human beings. There was no consciousness at that time. How can, how can you say that? How can I say what? That there was nobody there? Yeah. Well, if there was someone there, then they have to have some sort of fuel like a, like eyes for consciousness. And I don't think that there were any eyes there. In fact, it, it was hard to find even uh, a hydrogen molecule in the very beginning. Well, I'm not sure if it is in the Abhidhamma, but I'm not sure where it is or if it if it's really like something true, true, but isn't like mental consciousness based or arises based upon the previous men moment of mental consciousness, something like that? Right, the, pre the previous moment, not 500 years ago. Yeah, and... Previous moment was what's happening in this moment, okay? That's that an important point to recognize, okay? So... The, the idea then about the Big Bang or what happened originally, you and I for sure were not there. Therefore, you and I uh, have no knowledge of the Big Bang. All we have are stories about people telling about a Big Bang and all those people did was look at stars moving in the sky and deduce that there was a Big Bang. But in fact, nobody knows. Now, here's the important thing. The important point is, is that it's irrelevant because even though something happened uh, uh, 13.7 billion years ago uh, or not is irrelevant because, for instance, the chair that you're sitting in is still there whether the Big Bang happened or not. Mm -hmm. And so what happened in the Big Bang is irrelevant. 
Another, in other words, the beginning of anything is irrelevant. All we need to do is work with what we have now without needing to consider what was the original source. That we don't know. This is what one of the things that is called an imponderable. How did everything get started? We don't know. We don't have an answer to that. But guess what? It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's got nothing to do with how we live our lives today. Okay. So the next one we could say that it's along that line would be uh, the, uh, the Christians have the idea of creationism. And then you have the idea of evolution, and with evolution you have geography and geology and uh, um, archaeology and all of these sciences and all this data. And all the creations have is something that they got out of some old book. But the point is, is that is um, creationism or is um, evolution correct is irrelevant. It's not important. Some people believe in reincarnation or uh, in uh, creationism. Other people believe in evolution and both of them are unhappy. And the guy that's un that is truly happy is unconcerned. He doesn't care. He's not there, out there with the archaeologist, uh, with his hammer and tongs and digging things up and trying to prove to himself is creationism real or is um, eternal uh, is um, evolution real, because it's irrelevant. What's relevant for the Buddha uh, and the Buddha teachers and Dhamma dudes is how can we come out of suffering right here, right now? And so that's a change of reference from the deep, dark past and the deep, dark future into a more present past and a more present future down to this very moment, only now. And the, and the past, whether it was yesterday or 10,000 or 13 billion years ago, is irrelevant. What is relevant is what we're doing now. And can freedom be, like, they say, irreversible? Like, eradicate the kilesas? The arising of the kilesa. No eradicating them completely. Well, how do we do that? Is every time that we see, we throw it out. Every time we see it, we throw it out. If yeah, we but... keep doing that, then that means that we're robbing it of its fuel and it will eventually, that fire will go out. Throw it out. We throw it out, throw it out through or by seeing its cause and kind of like
Yeah, they're seeing it's because we, we throw the Gillesas out. Say that again. Well, you said that every time we the, the Gillesas arise, we throw them out, right? Okay. So if we're mindful of them, if we if we catch it, if we remember, but because if we don't remember, we won't throw it out. What I'm getting at is that how is there a way that they will never never arise again? If if something has no fuel, if that fire has no fuel left, then it will naturally go out. And we. So how do we end the fuel of the Kilesas? That's my question. Well, we do that by sati, to wake up, to throw the unwholesome out of the mind, the kalesa, if you will, and to put something wholesome in the mind instead. That, over and over and over again, to keep putting wholesome things in the mind and putting wholesome things in the mind over and over and over again, means that now we have fewer and fewer mind moments for those kalesas in the mind. But when they are there and someone is not practicing, they go round and round and round and round and round and round, okay? Grinding in, making a path, creating a rut. Creating a rut in the mind because we keep going over it over and over and over again and grinding it in. But if we have um, wisdom, then we can say, wait a minute, I'm not going to drive down that path anymore. I'm going to uh, make a new path. Mm -hmm. A path that's wholesome. And because of that, uh, that unused path eventually is going to grow over. Eventually, the ruts are not going to be seen as ruts. They're just going to be seen as part of the terrain. Because the grass is going to grow, the spring is going to come, uh, uh, the animals are going to trace, and that, that old rut in the mind is no longer being followed. And therefore, it has less and less energy. Another way of thinking about it is, is that those neurons that created that old path and are now that old path are going to die, only be uh, replaced by newer neurons that have more wholesome function. So what is Nibbana? Nibbana is when you are cool. In fact, the word Nibbana only means the word cool. Then in the time of the Buddha, they would say that the food was Nibbana. And when the food comes, like a pizza pie, when you bring a pizza pie right out of the oven, after it's immediately cooked, you don't eat it right then. Burn the inside of your mouth. A lot of food is too hot to eat, so we want to let the food cool off. Another word uh, used for the word Nibbana was that animals, when they're domesticated, they become Nibbana. They're not wild anymore. You meet that wild dog on the street and he's going to give you a whole lot of trouble. But if that dog is nibbana he may bark, but he won't bite. If he's completely Nibbana, he's not even going to bother with you. He's cool. 
That's what we mean by the word nibbana. It only means the word cool. And we have that kind of expression in English also. Chill, cool off. In Thai language, they say jai yin, which means have a cool heart. Cool off. Okay. This is what we mean. Cool off, settle down, become calm. That's what nibbana is. And Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa makes the point that everybody has little nibbanas on a regular basis. If we were hot all the time, we would burn ourselves out. Everybody has a bit of time to relax, to get our mind off of our worries. And so we have all kinds of things like activities, entertainments, um, hobbies. Those are the kind of things that keep us from having to deal with all of life's problems all the time. So that's what meditation then is, is it's a substitute or let's practice something that's really wholesome rather than spending all of our time in unwholesome kalesa, just spending it over and over and over again. To spend our time in nibbana, to spend our time cool. Domesticated. <laughs> at home. That's what the word domesticated means, is that we're finally at home. We're at our domicile. We feel secure and comfortable at home. Um, what's the, well, two things. <laughs> um, the Abhidhamma says that Nibbana is the unconditioned element? It is unconditioned because it's unconditioned by the fire of the kalesa. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. And so things will naturally cool down. When, uh, when there is no uh, conditioning at all, that would be, let us say, out, out in outer space. Out in outer space, the temperature is about three degrees Kelvin. Very, very cold. There is no place on Earth that is cold as it is in deep outer space except an occasional university lab. Okay, why is space so cold? Is space is so cold out in outer space is so cold? Because there's nothing there to bang around. That heat is actually nothing but friction, things colliding, moving around, banging around, not at home. When everything, every particle comes at rest at home, everything cools off. It's unconditioned. That does not mean the same thing as unconditionable. Okay, unconditioned means right now it has no conditions, and because it has no conditions, it's cool. Uh -huh. yeah. I think. Yes. What about the 
the practice called Niroda, Niroda Samapati. Pardon? You know, well, yeah, you might know about the practice called Niroda Samapati. Uh, I'm not quite catching the word. Uh, Niroda? Uh -huh, Niroda Samapati. Well, the word Naroda means basically to rot away. Mm -hmm. You can hear the word no in Niroda or Neil, or uh, it means uh, the, the act of removing. Naroda, like uh, 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 Dukkha, um, Dukkha, Naroda. Uh, it means to rot away or to uh, disintegrate or to fall apart. And everything has the tendency to fall apart. Everything has a tendency to change. Anything that can change is going to change from something to something else. Anything that changes from something to something else means that when we label it as the from, uh, as desirable, and then uh, it changes to something that is not desirable, that means that the desirable quality died. So Dukkha Naroda the, whatever the word Naroda means, it means that things are dying out or that they're changing. And that some things are changing to the point that they're completely extinguished or completely gone. Just like fuel in a fire. Eventually the fuel will be used up and then the fuel is gone, then the fire will also be gone. So this is what we mean by Naroda, is the burning away or the changing quality that, that transforms something from one thing to another. An example of that is what they call a boat anchor. Okay, this laptop used to be a laptop. But now it's not a laptop, it's a boat anchor. It's just a heavy object that I have in the house. Okay, it, it changed, it broke, it deteriorated, it neuroded, it changed from a laptop into a piece of junk that looks like a laptop but doesn't function or act like a laptop at all. So that's what we mean by neuroda. Everything is falling apart. Due to I'm, conditions. Or what? Due to conditions. Due to the cause effect. If things are affected, that means they change. If they change, they're going to change from this to that. Which means that when it changes from that, that dies. Because it's no longer that. It's no longer a laptop. It's a piece of junk now. Do you know about this thing, this thing Ajahn Sumero talks about? 
he he says something like unconditioned consciousness. Have you heard him? Well, in a way, that's an oxymoron because we already have discovered and discussed the fact that consciousness itself is a kind of conditioning or is conditioned. It has causes and effects. But there's another way of looking at it in the sense of it being unconditioned means that it is not using the past in order to figure out what is the present. That unconditioned consciousness just allows the present moment to be the present moment without conditioning it from the past. But generally, us humans, we try to add stuff from the past to make sense out of it. An example of that would be um, very, very primitive man walking through his jungle. And he runs across laying on the ground a boombox. Or maybe a laptop. And he has no clue about what that is. He is not conditioned by the knowledge of laptops. So when he sees that laptop, he doesn't have a clue about it. He probably is not going to bother with it. He's not going to pick it up and take it home. He's just going to leave it there because it's unconditioned for him. But if you walk through that same jungle and you see that laptop laying there, you're going to pick it up and say, ah, I've got a laptop. So that's an example of unconditioned. Unconditioned means that we're not using our past to try to figure out what is the present moment. And we'll talk more about that at a later time. There's a lot to be done with that. But we've been going on now for about an hour and a half, and your original question was about comma, and I think that we've beaten that down pretty well. Kind of, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you mull over that and think about it, and we'll go then for um, a deeper teaching about the fact that there is no self that can be reborn. There is no soul. But we don't know what happens after death, but we do know this one thing, and that is nothing is permanent. And the whole idea of a soul is something that's permanent, unchanging, so strong and powerful that it survives not just one death, but death after death after death after death, long into the future becoming eternal. Okay, that's the idea of the soul, and we already know from our physics lessons, we already know from every part of our life that there is nothing like that. There is nothing that we know that's absolutely permanent. Something being absolutely permanent means that it does not have any causes or effects that can affect it. Also means that it's a kind of a fire that has no fuel. Uh-huh. But we know that every fire has a fuel. Everything has a cause. And therefore, there cannot possibly be a soul because the whole definition of a soul is something that's permanent and everlasting. Mm -hmm. Well, 
and nothing is permanent or everlasting. Not even a not even a rock or a stone. You can take a hammer to it and beat it up, break it apart. So nothing is permanent. Everything is temporary. And for many people, let's let's end on this point. And that is, is that when people first come to understand this, they feel like that they've lost something. But the reality of the situation is, is that what you've lost is a delusion. That in fact, you're beginning to understand things the way they really are, and that's liberating. is liberating to recognize, hey, I don't have to worry about the distant future. I don't even have to worry about tomorrow. All I've got to worry about is today, right now. Okay. All right. So no soul, nothing permanent, nothing lasts forever. Everything is temporary, and we can have a marvelous, happy existence without having anything that's permanent. Everything changes, everything is temporary, and we can put up with all of those changes and manage them happily. So listen to this now, and we'll talk later. Call me again. There's lots to discuss with this. But mull this over. Recognize there are four kinds of karma. Recognize that nothing is permanent. Recognize that consciousness, like all things, requires a fuel. And when you come to understand it, you say, darn it, that's right. Everything is like that. And here I've been listening to all of these religious people talk about really deep past and deep futures and where that's all irrelevant. <laughs> we'll see you later. Enjoy this present moment. Mm -hmm. See you.